Amazing Corner today, I'm talking to James Dixon, who is the author of The Below Maiden. James is a debut children's writer and the book was picked up in an open submission competition. It's a wonderful story set on a Scottish island in which Norse mythology and the real world collide. First of all, a big welcome to you, James. Thank you very much for having me. Let's start by telling listeners about the story. So it's a, about a young girl called Elsa whose mum is sick. It's not the first time she's sick and her uncle comes to pick her up where she lives in the city with her mum, a city loosely based on Glasgow where I live, and takes her back to where they live on an island, a pseudo-Hebridean island, where she spends her days in the summer holidays out exploring one day she comes across a cave in which she finds the Billa Maiden, a strange woman who seems broken and desperate, and it's up to her to save her and bring her back to full health. We'll talk a little bit in a moment about what a billow maiden is, but I think I'd like to start right at the beginning of the book and get a flavour of what Elsa's life is like and why she's on the island. So I wonder if you'd read from the very beginning of the story for us. I'd love to. Things began to get bad over the last few weeks before the summer holidays. It was Elsa's first year in secondary school. She had long term 12 and her mum got ill. She began to spend every day in bed. The place became untidy, then outright dirty. And finally, there was no food left in the fridge or freezer. In the end, Elsa had to phone Uncle Nod. It's happening again, she told him. You hold tight, love, he said. Pack your bags. I'll be there soon. He was there a few hours later. His truck chugged to a stop outside their flat. Elsa ran outside to meet him, relieved. They carried Elsa's mum out to the truck, laying her across the rear seats, and packed their bags into the back. Uncle Nod looked over at Elsa as they left the city. They took the motorway up to the harbour. Your aunt's getting your room ready for you, he said. And Moxie knows something's up, daft old fool. He'll be dead excited to see you. How long will we stay with you, she asked. As long as you want to, love, he said. He grinned over at her, though she could see how worried he was. She was worried too, but she felt safer now she was with him. Uncle Nod drove them onto the ferry. He sat in the truck and her mum lay swaddled in a blanket across the back seats. Elsa spent the whole time at the front of the boat, enjoying the sea spray and the wind. It was her favourite part of the journey. The choppy sea and savage wind, the bump and rock of the boat, and the salty, briny smell of the sea always made her smile. It always made her feel alive. The island on which her aunt and uncle lived emerged on the horizon as she stood watching it gleamed in the summer sunshine and she relaxed a bit. Uncle Nord and Aunt Bertha would take care of things. They always did. So I want to pick up on some of the things from that reading, the family that she's staying with, her uncle and aunt. They're going to take care of the mother. And Ailsa is left to roam the island alone. She's got a considerable amount of freedom in this environment. I always think if, if you're going to tell a, a story about children, you need to bring some bad parenting into it. You need a better laissez-faire. Otherwise, you've got a story about kids following adults around all day and being shepherded. Whereas if they're allowed to go out and fall out of trees and bark their shins, then you've got a good story. You've got the freedom that kids reading it will want to have and you'll have a character open to the plot moving along. And I have to say that it's not simply a plot device for you. It's quite integral to the story, the mother's mental health, because it's tied up not only with her context, but the natural world and the ailing of the planet. These two things are both centrally important to the story. Absolutely. I wanted to write 
a novel about how our own health and well-being is dependent on the natural world, the world around us, our circumstances, our day-to-day. And I wanted a natural avatar to show that. I thought that would be quite an enjoyable plot device. I thought that would be quite enjoyable for kids to read. It was very enjoyable for me to write, which is where the woman she finds in the cave, the billow maid, and that's where she comes into it. She is ailing in a very parallel way to her mother. It does work really well. And there is a point fairly early on in the story where we have the description of the look of the mother, her pale skin, the way that she's swaddled. It's very similar to the way that you described the found woman in the rock pool. So I instantly made that connection. Good. And hopefully then when, I don't think it's giving too much away to say there's a relatively happy ending. And when that happens, when these two women complete their arc facilitated by Elsa. It's it's quite natural that their arcs should remain in tandem. You talked about that trope of the child being free of adult supervision, but she has a surrogate parent in Moxie, her uncle's dog. And because Moxie is not threatened by this strange woman in the cave, This gives a sense of security and it's almost like the dog is watching over the child. Exactly. That's how I wanted to signpost to the reader early on that this is not a threatening person. It's a friend in the making. There's a bond to be had here. And also I'd go a step further and say that Moxie makes it happen. It's a hidden cave that no one can get to. Moxie shows her the way. She doesn't want to go into the cave, but ducks in and she has to chase him to get him out. And that's how it happens. It's very much playing into the idea that this atavistic side of this dog is recognising something that's going on that Elsa isn't able to see at first. I think we probably can't hold off any longer from <laughs> telling listeners a little bit about Billow Maiden. So there are lots of different folk stories and legends about folk that live in the sea, and the Billow Maiden is particularly from the Norse tradition. So tell us a little bit about Billow Maidens and how this came to be part of the story. It's interesting you pick up with this, an idea that crops up in in different traditions, because originally I wanted to write about a Selkie, and it was very explicitly a Selkie, a woman who looked like a seal at sea, shed her skin and was a beautiful young maiden on the shores and if someone steals that skin she's beholden to them and entrapped by them and that forms part of the backstory here and at the same time as I was wanting to write that I much like yourself I have a very keen interest in different mythologies Nordic folklore being one of them I looked up what different traditions made of selkies there's a few references in the book to the Bella Maiden's ability as a siren so the sort of Greek tradition and I found these billow maidens. I thought, oh, what are these? And the name of one of them really stood out to me. So it's Heffering, which we'd learn in the book, means the rising tide. And that, to me, spoke volumes of the ecological message that's wrapped up in the book. The idea that not literally the tides are rising, although we know that is the case, but rather there is a rebellion. Nature is rebelling. And I wanted an avatar for that rebellion. So when I found this creature called the rising tide, and she was a sulky mermaid type being. It was too good to pass up. I didn't know that there were nine sisters, all named after different qualities of the yeah. waves. And I loved that idea. 
Yeah, yeah, so you've got one sister who's the sort of bloody froth after a battle at sea. They're all a different aspect of the sea. It's lovely. And I also like the idea when I read about the Billow Maidens, they were quite fickle and they would trap ships and some ships they'd steer to safety and others they'd pull apart and sink and steal what was on board. The sort of thing encompasses everything, every element, every emotion. And they really did for me. Reading more and more about these nine sisters really just encompass everything it is to be human. Can you tell us a little bit about when Elsa first sees Hefring in the pool, what that vision is that she sees? When I was writing it, the figure herself was less important than the surroundings. And so I worked from that way inwards. So I, I grew up, me and my brother, exploring rock pools in Cornwall. And me and my brother would just disappear into the caves all afternoon. And so I had these kind of smugglers' coves, these proper pole duck style caves in mind. And that's what she walks into. There's a shallow pool in there. The woman is half submerged and she's basically rotting. In my mind, I had Skellig in David Armand Skellig when he goes into the garage and finds Skellig. It's a wonderful descriptive passage of finding this odd man. Something isn't quite right. And I thought, whereas Skellig had been festering in a dusty atmosphere, Heffering that the Billamane has been rotting away. At one point I described the smell around her as a dockyard stench. She really is just almost a rotting cadaver at this point, but bloated by the sea. And that's what Elsa walks in on. Elsa finds it very difficult to tell anybody. She wants to talk about it, but she can't. Which brings me on to a technical aspect of the writing that I really enjoyed, which is the dialogue or maybe the lack of dialogue. How many things can you express through just using the word I am? Living in Scotland for the last nine years and you can express a lot. There is a lot of dialogue, but it's quite samey. Mm. It's just those eyes are very context dependent. They're in absolute turmoil with the various health concerns, both Elsa and Camilla, her friend. Their situations are incredibly tumultuous. And so they're just, they were just making it through day to day, just mm. trying to get through. Elsa's going through the kind of thing that a child can't look at straight. You can't get your head around it. So she's having to just take it piecemeal and digest it almost without realising it. And in a way, she gets lost in this adventure to almost get away from it. So when she doesn't speak about what's going on, there's a very good reason for it. There are a couple of times she does speak about what's going on and then she really pours out. But for the most part, no, I wanted to keep that quiet. And... As I said to you before we started recording, it reminded me of Pinter's dialogue. Of course, he's writing for the stage. The difference, of course, is that this is a novel. It's not set on the stage. So you have got that opportunity through the narrative to give us access to Elsa's interior life. Which, again, I don't think I do too much. I do more than I did in the first draft. As I said to you before we started recording, a lot of this book is down to Bella Pearson at Guppy Books, my editor, who read the first draft and said, OK, that's good, but not much happens. And I said, oh, yeah, I don't want much to happen. She said, no, build this scene out, flesh this out, have them express themselves, focus it on Elsa. And I said, oh, it's too much. And she said, the way you write is never going to be too much. It's too little at the moment. So what you get paired back and spartan as it is, is actually me almost over-egging it. The beginning, there's, there was so much going on with other characters. Elsa was nearly lost, the main character, and I didn't want that to happen so I made sure that everything I show, every scene, she's in it. Mm. So although she doesn't particularly say that much, she doesn't really express herself, 
she has the eyes and ears on the ground. She knows everything we know. The story sort of tells itself in that way, or at least I hope it does. I don't like clutter. In any walk of life, I don't like clutter. And it's very much the same with my writing. I'm a big Salman Rushdie fan. And so when I first started, you write what you read, don't you? And so it was very exuberant out there and it just didn't work. It really didn't work. What someone from Mumbai can write isn't what I can write. And then I read his autobiography when he mentioned that when he first started writing, he read Ian Forster and he said that he had this idea that he'd be able to write cool Forsterian prose and it didn't work in his voice. And I thought, hang on a minute, maybe it'll work in my voice. So I read some Ian Forster. I read some more paired back writing by various novelists and thought, okay, that's the way I can go. This is my first children's book. It's my second novel. My first one was very much inspired by J.M. Curtsy, who in exactly the same way, doesn't say much. A, a lot happens around what he's saying, but you don't really, you don't ever get a clear shot at it. And, and so there, that was a, a really big shift in my own personal writing journey. Tell me a little bit more about Camilla and her family. So they're gangsters. And again, in the original manuscript, I alluded to that. They were a family whose paterfamilias almost was, the, Camilla's father was a businessman and I had hinted that he was corrupt. Obviously, we don't see any gangsterism, but they're, they're the rich people in the village whose mansion overlooks Elsa's aunt and uncle's small little fishing boatyard. But for all the material wealth they have, Camilla finds Northern Bertha's Elsa's aunt and uncle's place almost luxurious because it's so warm and inviting and loving. And they have a couple of evenings there where she looks wistfully around because her family is so cold, but also aggressive and unapproachable and she's also quite well aware of the kind of family they are. So it might make it quite hard for her to make friends on the island. That's it. They're both outsiders for me. She lives away so she goes to boarding school. She spends her summers at summer school. Summer school was cancelled this year so she's just loafing about at home for the first time ever. Doesn't really know anyone and then there's this other outsider Mm. living next door and they make friends and have their adventures and become incredibly close incredibly quickly. She's a reader and there was a little thing that she said they were talking about schoolwork and she says I never really finish the work they give me I spend all my time reading I prefer it that way then I get to learn what I want to learn. I just wondered how much of you was in that statement my mum enjoyed that passage quite a bit when she read it that was me I never did my work at school but I never had my nose out of the book tell us about Elsa's mum and her illness and and why writing about mental health was so important to you so a lot of it's based on my experience I know a couple of people who've read it and thought that I'd almost overdone it with Elsa's mum she's not just depressed she's basically in a coma later on that's almost a medically induced coma but At the start, it's just, she's that depressed, she's in a coma. She's an inanimate object to all intents and purposes until the very, very end. That's based on my own experience. I'm bipolar, so I have periods where I'm not that bad, but periods like that. My granddad, my maternal grandfather, was bipolar, and he was very much like that. And a lot of the description of the mum were basically lifted from my mum's description of how my granddad could be. She said you could sit him in a chair and he'd just have this sort of thousand yard stare. 
you could lift his hand up and it would just flop back down to the arm of his chair because he was gone. He was mm-hmm. absent to all intents and purposes for weeks. He died when I was very young. I only have a couple of memories of him, but I've grown up with those stories and then with my own experiences tying into them quite dramatically at times. Difficult for children, but important for them to understand. And perhaps we've hidden children from these things and they become more scary because we don't really talk about them. Absolutely. And one of the things I was quite determined with Elsa is that she's not particularly bright. She's not particularly imaginative. She's not very expressive at all, but she's very straightforward. She's very pragmatic. And so she doesn't view her mum's illness with any kind of terror. She doesn't dress it up in any way. There's no diminishing it, but also she doesn't catastrophize. She just goes, oh, that's what mum is going through that now. And I better call Uncle Nod. And then when she's explaining it to Camilla, she says, sometimes I understand it. Sometimes I don't. But an almost fatalistic, it is what it is. And I wanted to get that across to children that sometimes this happens. Some people go through this. Lots of people go through it once. Some people go through it a lot, and I didn't want to water it down. Can we talk a little bit about the experience of winning this wonderful open manuscript competition? Yeah, I wrote The Bill I Maiden during lockdown, but hand wrote it actually, because I do a lot of freelance work, so I was at my computer too much. And then I typed it up, and as I finished typing it up, Guppy Books opened their, I suppose it was the 2021 open submissions, And I remember seeing that the shortlisted entrants would get an hour's consultation with Bella, who is Guppy. She set it up. She's the editor. She's the brains behind it. She's she's the whole show. And anyone who knows anything about children's publishing knows how phenomenal she is. So I thought, if I can just get to the shortlist and have an hour's video conversation with Bella, I'll be a hundred times better off than I am now. So I got through the long list and couldn't quite believe it, got through to the shortlist. Uh, and then she emailed me and said, I want to talk about something. And I froze. And I don't think I said much to her. I just nodded at the phone dumbly. But then we had a proper chat the following week and she signed it. And then she really got her teeth into it. And so then when you got to work on it together, you've already said that one of the things that she wanted to do is pull more out of it. What do you think are the other important things that your editor that Bella did to help you shape the story that it is now? There are some specific scenes that she helped me with. Overall, it's a case of tuning it up. The idea's there, but here's how we can really bring it to the fore. Elsa, it wasn't half the character she was before Bella helped me. The parallel that Heffring and Elsa's mum have was very much implied. Bella was of the opinion that they should be more explicitly tied. So I did that, and that managed to bring out a lot more of their characters. Even though the mum is in a semi-coma for most of it, she takes on a character then because of that. I also didn't really talk about her mum originally, whereas she shares a few stories with Camilla, which furthered that, and that was Bella's idea. One of the things that a lot of people are feeding back to me as, as they've read it is the ending. I'm not going to give it away, but to me, even, it's a very satisfying ending. It's got a proper resolution to it. It's lovely. It's a very neatly wrapped ending. And that was better. Endings are so important, I think. You've got to end on the right note. I don't think it's giving too much away. And I do want to mention it. I think that 
There is a point in the story where Ailsa says to her mother, mummy, my mummy, railway children, surely. Only a couple of people have picked up on that. I think you and my mum, and I don't think anyone else has picked up on that, but it was very deliberate. My mum had the book. I think she actually rereads it like annually. It's almost a a pilgrimage for her to reread it. But we had a cassette, an old VHS with the, the Jenny Agatha railway children that we used to watch all the time. And the image of the dad getting off the train at the end, being semi hidden behind the mist and walking through it, coming back to the family, coming back to Jenny Agatha. And then she shouts out, oh, daddy, my daddy. Mm. It was, yeah, it's 100% lifted from that. Mm. Partly as a as an homage and partly just to screws into my mum and make her cry. And she did. <laughs> I'm not surprised. James, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I found this a really refreshing read. And I loved it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.